Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. Thanks so much for joining us. And if this is your first time, I invite you to hit subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever else you might be listening to the show. All right, everyone, I am here with Hamil Hussein. Hamil is a staff machine learning engineer at GitHub. Hamil, welcome to the Formal AI podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited for this conversation and particularly because we've had a couple of reschedules due to technical issues. So this is a hotly anticipated conversation on my part. It was anticipated prior to all that, but really looking forward to digging into the chat. Let's jump right in and have you share a little bit about what you do at GitHub. Yeah, thanks for asking. So at GitHub, I've been doing a couple of different things. So I spent a long time at GitHub doing open source work. So I've worked a lot on FastAI. So GitHub sponsored me to work on FastAI for a large period of time. And then I also did a lot of work with GitHub Actions, integrating those with different data science open source projects like Great Expectations, Jupyter, Kubeflow, so on and so forth. Now other than that, I've been working a lot internally on our ML infrastructure. So those are kind of like different flavors of things. Currently, I'm on paternity leave. So I had a newborn two months ago. Congrats. <laughs> I technically have not been doing anything work-related for a couple of months. Nice, nice. I was going to go down a rat hole and ask you how your sleep was, but we'll... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> it's actually surprisingly not so bad compared to my first uh, child, so... Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. So I guess I wanted to kind of start out with the the fast AI work that you've been doing and how that came about. But it may be useful context for you to share a little bit about your background and kind of how you came to work on the infrastructure side of machine learning. Yeah. So I started in data science a long time ago, uh, around 2003 or so when I graduated from undergrad. Back then, I was working as a statistician predicting loan defaults for a large bank. Mm. After that, I went on to work in management consulting, doing like a data science flavor of things. I had a brief hiatus where I tried out a different career, which we don't have to get into right now. <laughs> and then back to the kind of technical consulting. And then I decided after doing so many data science projects at different companies and different industries, I knew that pooling was like really far behind because people always struggled with like, deploying models, monitoring them, doing things in a systematic way. There are a lot of open source tools, but not really good like systems. And so at that time, in 2014 or so, I was happened to be living in Boston at a time. And at that time, and there was a startup called Data Robot, which building ML tooling, mm -hmm. specifically is auto ML tooling. So they got a bunch of people that are really good at Kaggle, three or four different grandmasters, all of which were like number one at some point and decided to bake in a lot of their best practices with regards to modeling to a product. And I thought that was really interesting. So I joined them. I learned a lot there about how to create software for data science. I spent a lot of time talking to different kind of implementing these systems at different companies that are trying to use it, trying to automate some of their uh, machine learning processes. And then I ended up moving to the Bay Area because my wife, she was doing medicine and she's in a fellowship program. So we had to move to the Bay Area. And then I decided, you know, I would like to experience one of these Bay Area companies I keep hearing about. Like <laughs> it's some kind of like uh, different from the outside, you know, Silicon Valley looks like a really different 
and kind of amazing experience, you know, when you hear about it, like at least like when you're living somewhere else or you're not part of that. So I have to like experience this. So mm-hmm. I joined Airbnb as a data scientist shortly after coming to the Bay Area. And that was a really interesting experience. When I found the Airbnb, like, so when I first got to Airbnb, I thought, it would be really advanced in terms of like ML tooling, ML infrastructure. I thought I won't need any tools and infrastructure. You know, they already they'll probably already have those. Yeah. Because it's you know it's Silicon Valley. And <laughs> when I got there, the the first project they gave to me was this model that forecasts LTV. And they said like, hey, can you just review this model? Customer lifetime value? Yeah, lifetime value, yeah, for marketing, for growth marketing. And they asked me to kind of take a look at it, see if I can make any improvements on the model. Kind of like your first getting your feet wet into the place. Mm-hmm. And so actually this particular model was a guy who ran an R script on his laptop, sped out coefficients, and he copy and paste the coefficients into an Excel spreadsheet, which had like formulas that would like materialize these coefficients into a SQL query that then copy and paste it into Airflow. Wow. It like really blew my mind. And I thought, wow, like I made it to Silicon Valley. Yeah, I thought I made it to Silicon Valley and, you know, working at a very celebrated tech company. And it's like, wow, okay, like there's no ML tooling at all whatsoever. Like it's you can't really imagine anything more basic than that. And so then I started to build tooling at Airbnb. And then kind of got back into tooling and then created a lot of things, a lot of like artifacts that ended up being used for Big Head. Mm-hmm. And then after that, I ended up going to GitHub, which is where I'm at now. And then I started working on infrastructure there and tooling there. Ended up working on a lot of open source stuff with regards to tooling. And so at this point, I'm pretty much sold myself or convinced myself that I will be doing ML tooling for the foreseeable future because I keep somehow floating back into that no matter how hard I try to do anything else. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. At GitHub, what are the main kind of use cases that ML is being used for nowadays? I mean, there's stuff that we hear about like Copilot, but I imagine that probably most of the use cases that, you know, GitHub ML engineers and data scientists are working on are kind of, you know, internal types of use cases and then maybe not dissimilar from the kind of thing you did at Airbnb supporting growth and kind of platform health and that kind of thing? Yeah. So there's a bunch of different use cases at GitHub. Uh, Some of them you touched on. So a lot of forecasting of various things in terms of like infrastructure usage. Also, there's a lot of platform health stuff like detecting spam, detecting bots of various kinds. Apparently, people like to buy stars, things like that. You know, like, uh, you know, catching things like that or catching abuse of the platform. I didn't know that was a thing. Yeah, I didn't know that was a thing either. (laughs) Seems like a pretty low point in your life if you had to to go buy stars. (laughs) There's actually some user-facing stuff that are not known so widely. So if you go to github.com slash explore, you'll see a recommendation of different repositories you might be interested in based upon your activity on GitHub. And then also, like another example is if you create a new repository, you can attach uh, topics to it, like different tags. And so there's a small recommendation system that will recommend other tags you should apply. So there's some things like that. Mm -hmm. So these are the kind of things that data scientists work on inside GitHub. And there's pretty new thing for GitHub. Yeah. It's not really 
it's something that they're actually building up right now. It's in its most nascent stages, I would say. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so with that in mind, what does the platform look like at GitHub? Yeah, so it's been changing quite a bit. So we were on AWS before, and then we had kind of a, our own homegrown infrastructure that had that was composed of using a bunch of different things like Kubeflow and some other stuff. And then we got bought by Microsoft, and then we started transitioning everything over to Azure and using Azure ML. Mm-hmm. Azure ML is is the managed service with the Azure provides. And it kind of is white labels a lot of ML flow stuff as well mm-hmm. with regards to the experiment tracking and the model registry and things like that. It Azure ML more or less adopts that behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. That's what they're using. Okay, got it. And so how did your work with the Fast AI team and the Fast AI tools generally come about? Yeah, it was really organic. So the way that happened was, so when I first got to GitHub, I think GitHub was still trying to find, like, kind of get a sense for what it wanted to do with ML. Mm -hmm. There was definitely a lot of prototyping and sort of exploration of the space of, like, different ML projects, but it wasn't quite solidified yet. And so in the meantime, what I did was kind of do work in open source just for fun or just see, you know, and also look for opportunities for things that might integrate with GitHub. So at some point, you know, it's always been like a student of Jeremy's, like from a long Mm -hmm. time ago. One of the things I ended up learning like a long time ago in one of his classes was about how to do semantic search. So he showed something in one of his classes where he had like photos of different objects and you could search those photos semantically using natural language. But also, like, even if you construct a shared web vector space, you can create a semantic search. And so this is back in, I don't know, like 2017 or something. It's a little bit of a newer concept. And so I decided to try that out with code because I thought that would be really interesting. And at that time, like, no one has really used GitHub's public data set before. It wasn't really, for whatever reason, like, ML people have, like, ignored GitHub data set. Maybe it just wasn't obvious that you could get it and do something interesting with it. Hmm. So the thing that's really interesting about GitHub's data set, you can actually construct a really interesting parallel corpus out of it with regards to, so you can get a bunch of you code. And so like, for example, Python code, you can get pairs of doc strings and code. Got it. it takes some work. You have to like get the code, clean it, then you have to parse it out. You have to parse the doc strings out the code and like, yeah. And then remove a lot, you get a lot of duplicates and do all that stuff. So, I mean, that's a tremendous amount of work, but you can actually get a very interesting parallel corpus. And then you can do a lot of representation learning on that code. And then you can produce some things that are really interesting. So then I started to work on that in open source. And then what eventually happened is we got bought by Microsoft. Uh, there were some people at Microsoft Research that were interested in that. We ended up using like fast AI in that. That was one of the things that I think Jeremy was really excited about. Like one of the things that an example of a use of this library kind of in the wild. Mm-hmm. So at first, my, this is my first involvement. And then at some point, GitHub released GitHub Actions. And so then I started going around to all these open source projects like Jupyter, Great Expectations, Kubeflow, so on and so forth, and started making integrations between GitHub Actions and these various data science projects. So like, for example, there's a project called Great Expectations that is like 
testing for data quality. So I thought, okay, it would be really interesting to do like CI/CD for data quality. Like, let's say if you're like updating a SQL query or something like that, like it wouldn't be cool if you had a test that could run, you know, if you're changing SQL code in a PR, we could trigger that test, things like that. And then I started helping Jeremy out with his CI/CD. And then one thing led to another and then started working on more and more things. Like once you start working on someone's CI/CD, you have to like understand like all their code, how it <laughs> runs, like you know, how the tests are run, what they mean, what's breaking. And then I started helping with this documentation. Even going back quite a few years, they've been doing pretty interesting things like integrating in documentation and code and doing that all in notebooks as opposed to kind of traditional code files. So I oh, imagine yeah. you got sucked into that and that led to, you know, some of the things like MBDev and fast pages and, and that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So fast forwarding, got stuck, you know, went to a big rabbit hole on all these things that you described. Because then I started wondering, like, well, how is all this stuff created? Like, it's not that clear to me. Because actually, you know, like, they're doing a lot of interesting things yeah. using a very unique tech stack. And so then I went and learned that tech stack. And then I got really involved in things like MBDev and FastCore and started working on that. And then subsequently work on a bunch of other projects. So... Yeah, it's just very organic, kind of went into, you see one thing, get interested in another thing, and it leads to something just else. pulling threads. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what is MBDev? Yeah, MBDev is a development environment that all of FastAI is built in. It's a literate programming environment. So the idea is you should be able to write your code in your documentation and test all in a single context and not have to write your code in a different place, your test in a different place, and your documentation in yet a different place, and keep those all in sync yourself. But like that should be more natural. Like, hey, write some code, explain it to yourself and to your users, and then have like inside the documentation, have some runnable code that explains like how this code runs, like by example, you know, also make those tests if you can as well, but make it very natural, like a conversation with your users and have that be run every single time your code, you want to update your library and have those tests always run. Basically what MBDev is built on some of the things at Jupyter for the interactive aspect of like writing code, but also being able to write prose alongside your code. So it integrates that with a static site generator that renders documentation and then also some other tech things that export notebook code to plain like modules, like to Python modules that you would write in an IDE like VS code. Mm -hmm. So it's a system that like glues together these things to create a new development environment. There's this mm -hmm. literate programming environment. And it's kind of hard to explain like in this abstract sense, like I would <laughs> definitely say something to experience. Because when someone explained it to me, I was really skeptical. I was like, well, it just sounds like Jupiter. Yeah, you're like, well, what do you mean like MBDev? You just write everything in notebook? And that's not really what it is. It happens to be using a notebook, but that's not mm -hmm. the central point of it. The central point of it is like, it's an experience where you write, yeah, in this specific case, you're writing in a notebook, but you're writing your tests and documentation in the notebook with some special sugar in syntax that's available to you with for various options that automatically like documentation gets created and tests will get run in CI for you automatically. 
And the result of that is like much higher quality software and also like much lower iteration cycles. Because mm -hmm. what happens is, okay, it's so like most people don't write documentation and most people don't write tests. And why is that? Because like writing documentation sucks. Like you write your code and then now you're asking the developer to like, well, just go write this other documentation somewhere else and then keep that in sync yourself. And like, that's a pain, like, like yeah. very few people do that properly. The same thing with tests. It's really like the new development workflow. You might be wondering like, how does Jeremy and like maybe one other person, depending on who's on FastAI at the time, develop all of the software. And one of the secrets behind that is MBDEV mm -hmm. because it helps make you a lot more productive. Yeah. Like I mentioned, it does sound quite a lot like Jupiter or maybe Jupiter with some annotation types of things that let you say, hey, this is doc, this is code, this is test. But it sounds like it's more of a system than that. You mentioned literate programming a couple of times. You know, what is that and how does that play into what they're really trying to do with MVDev? Yeah, literate programming is this like big concept. I don't know who invented it. It's this concept where like your programming environment should not be dead. It shouldn't be completely static. You should be able to see the result of your code, how that changes, you know, inputs and outputs in real time as you're programming and be able to experiment on the fly. And then also like pros and code should be able to be intermingled naturally because you want to be able to talk to your users and talk to yourself and document your code beyond let's just say like comments necessarily and you want to be able to kind of have this expository like form of programming where you can kind of show your code and in the same context as like writing code and yes that sounds a lot like jupiter but like it's jupiter like with some other things to allow it to go the whole way because like Jupyter in it by itself is not doesn't allow you to do software engineering completely the way you might want to do it. It's not necessarily the best suited ID just to create like Python modules in. You would have to mm -hmm. export that somehow out of a Jupyter notebook if you're just using Jupyter. And then it's not necessarily straightforward. Like how would you write tests in Jupyter? Yes, it looks like if you write a really polished Jupyter notebook, it can look a lot like documentation. But then how do you actually like create documentation out of that in a systematic way, in a reliable mm -hmm. way? And then give users a lot of different options, like how to control that documentation. Because like you said, might not want to show all the code in the documentation. They might want to show certain things, or like how do you do that? So it's kind of like that friction you feel, and everyone may have may feel this, like you're in a notebook, you're developing some code. And then at a certain point, you're like, oh my God, goodness, I need to take this code and make it into plain text and you refactor it. Mm -hmm. And you're going back and forth a lot. And I think everybody's like a little bit frustrated in that process. You know, intuitively, can there be a better way? But we have all learned to ignore that mm -hmm. and just like say, well, that's just part of life. So MBDev is kind of this answer to no, like we shouldn't ignore that. Like, let's try to find a way. So by no means MBDev is kind of like the best thing that we can have with gluing together existing technologies. But I think, you know, someone could definitely take the concept of MBDev and build something from first principles that may work even better. Mm -hmm. But yeah, MBDev is kind of like this thing that just can work with just like kind of hacking some stuff together right now. From the description, it sounds like, yes, it's this tool that the FastAI team built to allow them to build the FastAI library. but it can be used more broadly by anyone for anything. Is that 
maybe not anything, but yeah, absolutely, yeah. It's not just for data science at all. In fact, I feel like it's been used for more regular software projects than it has been for anything related to data science. So there's been a lot of like API clients written with MBDev. There's been all kinds of other software that's been written with MBDev. You know, of course, it only works with Python. Yeah. At the moment, but I think it's general software development. It's a way, it's a development environment for general software development. Mm-hmm. When I think about some of the activity in this space, you know, I think of things like Netflix's Encompass. Like, and in fact, this was probably after your time at Airbnb, but at some point they were kind of going down the path of trying to like productionize notebooks. A lot of people have made attempts at that. Would you say that MBDev is in the the same vein? You know, in some ways it's more like what FastAI was actually trying to do was like write books and courses and things like that more so than production software. Even the the framework, the library, they were authoring it. They weren't necessarily trying to productionalize it in the traditional sense of the word. Is there a productionalization or operationalization aspect to MBDev at all? That's a good question. So as far as MBDev is concerned, it is definitely all about productionizing software in terms of making Python modules and packages, mm-hmm. pushing them to PyPy, making sure you have good documentation and good CI. Because like when you start an MBDev project, it automatically stubs out like CI for you. Okay. So that... It's kind of already there. And so it's very much geared towards nudging you towards productionization. Now, as far as FastAI is concerned, one of your observations is definitely correct. Like, I don't know that FastAI has been overly concerned about productionization of applications with FastAI, like Mm -hmm. relative to other tools that you might see. So, for example, TensorFlow has like TFX and TensorFlow serving and stuff like that. So it's definitely that stuff does not, it's not that those kind of things don't, are not there for fast AI. And you're right. Like one of the things that was like really important in fast AI is to be able to have really good documentation mm-hmm. and also like good tests. Yeah. Because especially like with the service area and then like only being like one or two contributors full time. And so one of the goals is like, okay, the docs have to be really good because after all, it is a this is used for education. If the docs are not good, people are going to get lost very quickly. But then, you know, the problem is with docs is like, how do you keep those in sync with the code when the code is changing so rapidly? Because the fast AI changes quite rapidly. You know, they're always keeping up with state-of-the-art things and making their own Mm state-of-the-art. And so the the answer to that was like, hey, let's make documentation a first-class citizen. Like, you should be doing it while you're writing software. Like, it should be really natural. There should be no friction in introducing documentation. Yeah, that's what MBDev allowed. Yeah. How do fast core and fast pages relate to MBDev? Yeah. One background of Jeremy is he has programmed a lot of different languages prior to Python. <laughs> you know, he says that sometimes that he's uh, been programming every day since he was, I don't know, some young age. Yeah. I was laughing because it's probably been a couple of years now, but in our, in the Twimmel community, we, you know, very early on kind of recognized the the importance of what he was doing with the library and hosted a study group around the course. And I remember kind of vividly, you know, 
my early experience with the library and, and other people's. And I remember making a comment on our Slack, like, why does he name these parameters names like this? Why does he name stuff like mm. that? And someone was like, yeah, he was a Perl contributor back in the day. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure I asked him about this in one of the past interviews with him. But yes, he's been programming for quite a long time. And he's, you know, he draws a lot of inspiration from kind of classical computer science, like the literate programming is Don Newth. And there are a bunch of other folks that, like he's a big fan of APL, yes. which is, you know, took a half a semester or a quarter of a semester in like a survey course in school. And it's like, only thing I remember about APL is that it had the weirdest keyboard. You had all these symbols. You're basically programming in Greek symbols, the APL. And like Jeremy's super into that. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, no, and this shows up. And he's not exaggerating when he says that because I've spent a lot of time pair programming with him. And, you know, he actually spends a lot of time hacking in different languages, even right now. What ends up happening is he, whenever he uses a new language, he tries to hack the language deeply mm -hmm. and create a bunch of utilities that bring in, like, other aspects of different, like, paradigms. Mm -hmm. You know, one thing he misses about Python is, like, you know, he wants more functional programming tools. Mm -hmm. Or he wants more like macro, like meta programming abilities and things like that. You know, that's what Fastcore is. It's like hacking Python deeply to give you like some more functionality or some different types of functionality that you might want and then you end up using that everywhere. But so if you just read fast AI code, mm -hmm. a lot of it may look pretty foreign, not only in syntax, but in style. You know, so there's like some things like succinctness, which, you know, he really values. He really likes to keep lines of code, like make things on one line. And the idea is to like, you could see all the code in like one page or as close to one page as possible or something mm -hmm. like this. That's where FastCore comes from. It's a very interesting, it was a deep rabbit hole. Like to understand FastAI deeply, I had to and understand the development environment, which is MB Dev. And also when you start to look at the source code, you have to understand like this fast core to understand the source code. And then like, yeah, it just goes from there. So like, <laughs> it's pretty interesting. If you're trying to like understand more about the Python programming language, like at a little mm -hmm. bit deeper level, it's pretty interesting to look at fast core to see like all the things you can do. And then try to, you can like get some insight on like how some of these things are done. And it's pretty interesting. It's a way to definitely learn more Python, even if you're like using it every day. Yeah. Yeah. I remember having that experience going through the course, like hacked a little bit with Python or, you know, like your typical Python stuff, right? Yeah. As far as maybe, you know, calling name function or whatever to get a list of methods or something like that. But you listen to Jeremy kind of talk about Python and, and work with it. And he's, you know, using all kinds of exotic dunder functions and stuff like that, that like okay yeah yeah <laughs> didn't know that existed <laughs> it's really interesting like and then you might wonder okay like well why is this even a good idea mm -hmm. like does it actually make this person more productive or you know like the costs and benefits of these things and so one thing i will say is mm -hmm. a lot of this like actually like is in service of some kind of learning as well like mm. doing this whole thing is a journey of like also continuously learning the python programming language at a deep level and he does that really soon. Like anytime he's frustrated with anything in Python, he'll stop, say, okay, can I like change it? Whereas like someone like me would be like, 
Okay, like, well, just let's just let's, let's just move on. Let's just do it. But then, like, the thing is, like, it adds up really fast. Like, he ends up knowing a lot about Python, like, really fast. Even like very esoteric things I would consider esoteric, like he'll know it. And so, you know, I think that adds to the productivity component. But you know, it does have the cost of like a newcomers. Okay, like. If you want to contribute to a fast AI library, you kind of have to learn this other thing. The rabbit hole is deep, it sounds yes, like. Yes, yeah, very deep, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so that's fast core, fast pages. Yeah, so fast pages is like an idea where, so like, you know, one thing that is really important is I find as a data scientist is writing blogs. Mm-hmm. It's really useful to like share your knowledge. You know, whenever I've written blogs before, you know, I used to use Medium. And like mm-hmm. a lot of times you want to put code in your blogs. But yeah. then, you know, the process of writing is not linear. Like, you start writing it down, and you're like, oh, you know, actually, this code, like, I don't like it anymore. Like, maybe I'm doesn't really make the point that I was thinking, or whatever. And you mm-hmm. change your code, then you have to, like, copy and paste all your code again into this thing, and then, like, update your words around it, and, like, update the output, and you're like, this is a big mess, because you're, like, copying and pasting constantly. Yeah. You realize, like, why am I doing this? I'm a programmer. Why am I copying and pasting like <laughs> charts and graphs and things into this thing so I can like write a blog post? Like, it doesn't make any sense. Like, mm-hmm. if I'm changing, can I just like change all of this stuff with code? And then you also realize, like, hey, there's like Jupyter. I can write where I can just run a Jupyter. No- like, isn't a Jupyter notebook like a blog? Why can't a Jupyter notebook be like a blog? Like, it's pretty mm-hmm. obvious. And then I started looking around how do I turn a Jupyter notebook into a blog? And actually, there was not a good answer for that. Mm-hmm. It was like, very hacky nothing really worked very well there's some like here and there different things i said look i just want something that just like i save a notebook somewhere and it just becomes a blog and then i have some ability to like hide cells and show cells and do some things like that and then so i took some of the ideas from mbdev with regards to how it renders docs and i said well why can't it just be a blogging platform the, all the conversion process and all that, you know, can you just automate that with GitHub Actions? Can we have like triggers that say, okay, when you update something in your repo, it just re-renders the notebook and reprocesses it and makes it into a page. And so that was the general idea of that. It was just like making it easier for you to write your blog as a notebook. Mm-hmm. I've always appreciated how Weights and Biases does that. They have a nice implementation of being able to kind of blog your experiments and things like that. Is it in a similar vein? Yeah. Yeah. I really like weights and biases too. One of my favorite tools. It's similar to that. I would say weights and biases is more of a, you don't really have to write any code really. If you don't want to, you mm-hmm. can just start typing like a Google doc and, you know, put stuff in there. So fast pages at a lower level. Yeah. I said lower level. It's like you make a proper Jupyter notebook and you save it. Okay. Weights and biases, the visualization layer is a bit different. Mm-hmm. They're not really necessarily using like Python in there. It's like some other syntax, mm-hmm. you know, and then you can use Vega and something like that to create custom visualizations. And, they ha- you know, it's kind of this middle ground. Yeah. So it's a bit different, but kind of a similar genre, I guess. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then you mentioned GitHub Actions in, well, you've mentioned it a few times, but, you know, most recently kind of as a part of the fast pages process, talk through GitHub Actions and some of the ways you've used them to support data science. Yeah. So the idea is like, can we use, can we have CICD in various data science workflows? Like, does it make sense? So for example, so while we're talking about weights and biases, one integration that I've made is something that will ping weights and biases for experiment tracking results and bring those into the PR and render them in the PR so that you can view them and then have a discussion. So the idea is like the example that I showed, 
was make a PR against some modeling code. I don't know if you've seen PRs like this, but I've seen a lot of different PRs that where someone makes a change to a model. And then what the review is like, hey, what happened? Does it make the model better? And the response is, yeah, it makes it better. And you just merge it. But like, you know, that is broken. Like, we know that's broken. Like, we can't do that. We can't have this like hearsay conversation about code. Like, yeah, it should be right. something that's very objective, like more objective. And so the mm -hmm. idea is like, okay, like, can you bring your experiment tracking results into the PR to accomplish, to bring more visibility into the results of the workflow. And there's a lot of different nuances there. I don't want to just give you the impression it's just something is triggered on every push or something like that, just like normal code, like machine learning is a little bit different. Mm -hmm. So the idea is like, can we, is there an integration that makes sense? Those are the kind of things I've worked on, for example. There's another thing where there's a project called Repo to Docker that takes any repository, like data science repository and dockerizes it. Mm -hmm. And this is for the purpose, this is what Binder uses. Like if you try to go to Binder and like give it a GitHub URL, it, what it will do is like it'll give you a Jupyter notebook, but it'll try its best to like build the dependencies by introspecting your repo. So you don't need the Docker file there. You're just, you know, giving it typical Python repo. Maybe it has a requirements TXT file and yeah. it's going to figure it all out. Yeah, it'll try to guess. Like, you know, as a hierarchy, like it'll look for requirements.txt file. If it doesn't find that, then it'll like look for a conda file. If it doesn't find that, it'll, it'll like look for something else and look for like these things. Mm -hmm. It also supports Docker files or, you know, if you have that, it'll look for that mm -hmm. or do whatever. But, you know, a lot of people don't have that stuff. Like a lot of data scientists right. just have requirements.txt or something and you want a reproducible right. environment. So it's like, okay, can you have GitHub Actions automatically build that for you and deploy it somewhere? So that's being used, GitHub Actions. So the GitHub Actions is interesting because like you can prepackage them and like make them modular. So like this weights and biases thing, like you don't have to, like you can just call the weights and biases action and like say, okay, you give it like three or four parameters to get it working. You don't have to use all of the code that I created for to ping the weights and biases API. Similarly, like for this Jupyter example, you know, you just give it like whatever parameters, like let's say you're trying to push this thing to a Docker repo this image that you automatically build, you just give it like your Docker credentials. And that's the kind of power of GitHub Actions is like, you don't have to worry about the complexity of these things. You can just use them in your workflows. Got it. So high level, you've got various lifecycle triggers on the GitHub side, whether that's, you know, code being pushed to something or a new comment and a ticket uh, and an issue. And then the action itself kind of encapsulates integrations with other things. And so you can basically hook all your other things into various stages of your, of interacting with GitHub. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's that's a good explanation. So some of the ones, did you mention actions for great expectations? Yeah. What is that one doing? Yeah, yeah, I did. Yeah. So you can say, let's say you have like a SQL file in your repo, mm -hmm. you can set up an action to trigger, like if you change the SQL file, let's say, and then, you know, you want to validate the data that is like emitted by the SQL file, or maybe it's even a table definition that you have in your GitHub repo. You can have that validated by great expectations. And then you can have the action like tell you whether it passed or failed the expectations check. And if it fails, you can actually have it place a link to the dashboard mm. that great expectations produces and, you know, things like that. So just make it a little bit easier. For you as a data scientist, like when you're doing something to have it more integrated, you know, where it makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. 
And yeah, maybe we kind of wrap things up. Do you have visibility into kind of the direction that Jeremy and the, the team are headed with Fast API? I'm wondering like, you know, what you're excited about there or, you know, what you're looking forward to taking on once you're back from paternity. <laughs> oh yeah, that's a good question. I haven't tried to stay true to my paternity leave and try to not pay too much attention to the outside world. It's been hard. But I actually don't know, to be honest with you, like what mm -hmm. necessarily they're going to focus on the most. I would actually have to talk to Jeremy to yeah. ask him about that, to be honest. What was on your list of things that you were kind of looking forward to and excited about before you left? Do you remember? <laughs> yeah. So one thing I've been really interested in is like the explosion of different ML tooling out there mm -hmm. and how this space is going to evolve. Yeah, And then also, like you know, I, how I mentioned, like GitHub is moved on to Azure and using Azure ML. I was actually looking at all these different alternative workflow tools for ML. Mm -hmm. And so I was exploring a lot of them. And the one that I was most excited about so far is Metaflow mm -hmm. from Netflix team. So, yeah, that's one of the things I've been playing with most recently. Nice. So we'll see. Maybe I will do something in that with that project in the future. Nice. I had I interviewed recently Vila Tulos, who is the the founder of that. He's no longer at Netflix. Now he's kind of doing a startup based on Metaflow. So I'm sure there'd be lots of opportunity to dig into what they're up to there. Well, Hamel, it's been great catching up with you. Excited we finally got to record this conversation. Thanks for joining the show. All right. Thank you for having me. Thank you. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.